Hi everybody, Owen here. This podcast is actually being recorded on a balcony overlooking Bondi Beach, but it uh, pertains to matters a little closer to home. It's a bit of a special podcast this week. It's kind of a break from the norm, which is interviews with people of profile. These are regular Joe Soaps with fascinating stories to tell. The Rutland Centre in my hometown in Ockline, South Dublin, is an addiction treatment centre. They treat all sorts of addictions from drugs and alcohol to gambling and sex, gaming to eating disorders. They cover it all. And for the month of September, they've run what's called a recovery month. It's basically an awareness month where they focus on the stories of young people who have passed through the doors of the centre and how life in recovery can be the best years of your life yet in spite of the darkness that has brought you there. So in this podcast, you'll hear from Connor and from David. They're both in their 20s. One is from California and the other is from the salubrious Terenure in Dublin. Connor found himself addicted to hardcore class A drugs and Dave's life was dictated by his near fatal addiction to alcohol. Both stories are, I guess, distressing in their detail and also joyous in their redemption. And if you or anyone in your life is struggling with addiction, you can seek advice and information on rutlandcenter.ie. They're fascinating stories. I hope you'll give them your ears and take something from them. This is Deep Diving, the Recovery Month special. And the first story you hear will be Connor's. Connor, hello. Hello. <laughs> How's it going? All good. How old are you? I didn't ask you that the last time. I am 24. Okay. Years of age. <laughs> Do you ever get told you look like anyone famous? No way, are you about to tell me I look like someone famous? Yeah, you look you look like a slightly more Irish because there's a tins of ginger in the beard. <laughs> Robert Pattinson. Did you ever get that? What? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they got a compliment or not. Yeah, it's a massive compliment. Right, He's like the new Batman. It's yeah. <laughs> a huge compliment. Um, anyway, good to see you. Good to see you. You're what age are you now? I'm 24. 24. 20, 25 in a couple of weeks. Happy advanced birthday. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, you're from California? I am. Yeah, yeah, born and bred. I'm a knockline man, so we're not half neighbours. Not too far apart. <laughs> well, knockline in the family home and then Ballycullen now, so uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, only around the corner. Down the road. So give us, give us a picture of you before you presented to the Rutland. What's kind of going on in your life? What are you doing with yourself? Um, well, I suppose, like we were talking earlier, like, you know what I mean? Uh, just to reiterate, really, it's, it, it, it wasn't much of a life in general I was leading it was sort of more of just an existence of, of walking around and sort of trying to come up with new ways and means of getting drugs and how to use them in the most effective way and, and, and you know what I mean how I could get the biggest hit possible out of the the drugs and, and substances I had at hand like you know what I mean with the little money I had on me all the time so it was it was fairly repetitive yeah. it was sort of like stuck in a cycle What age were you when you started doing drugs? 16, 16. I would have smoked weed at 16. Um, and then from then on, I, I never really talked to the weed. It was never really my thing, really. I was more of a drinker at that stage. I would have, I would have started drinking from the age of maybe 13, 14. I would have tried a couple of drinks here and there. Like. And that was just the way that anybody might try weed the first time, just someone at a party or someone going here, don't yeah, I? Talk yeah, that, that's all it was. It was literally at a party, like, you know what I mean? Someone had it on them and it was just normal just to try it it was like sort of a initiation like you know yeah, what yeah. i mean that's the way it was yeah um yeah so you weren't feeling the weed too much no i, I didn't really sit right with me like you know what i mean i sort of threw me threw up everywhere <laughs> after i smoked it the first time um save 
But then, yeah, yeah, yeah. but then after, but see, that's that's the funny thing. Like, you know what I mean? Then the next time I went to the party, even though I'd thrown up from smoking a previous, I'd done the same thing again. And I threw up again, you know what I mean? And that became sort of a repetitive pattern that no matter how bad the consequence was or what the effect was previous, I still, for some reason, went and done it again. Yeah. And I could never get my head around that, like... Okay. Until a couple of years down the line when I ended up in the situation I ended up in. Okay. Um, talk, uh, talk us through the, the, the journey from trying a bit of weed to becoming, I guess, addicted to hardcore drugs. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose, like, as, as time went on, the crowds of people that I was hanging around with, they just... They become, they sort of became more intense. You know what I mean? Like, the people that I was hanging around with, I'd go from... I always went from different friend group to different friend group. I never had one sort of close friend that I, I always sort of stuck with no matter what I was always sort of in the mix with everyone because I I was more comfortable that way and yeah. I, I think mainly due to the fact that I was so insecure like that I didn't really know who I was and I didn't sort of want anyone to realise that I didn't know who I was so I became different people for the different types of groups around me and because I was hanging around with so many groups of people there was an array of drugs on offer you know what I mean yeah. because you, you cross paths with people that just sort of are into different things or have their own sort of style of drugs like you know what I mean and I was a fan of that because I could try as many as I wanted um, and what kind of drug did you get hooked on then first the the, the main stuff I dabbled at the start was was pills ecstasy and, and MDMA and stuff like that but the big one the big kicker for me was was cocaine like that was the big big thing I uh, <laughs> I really took to that you know what I mean that was the the one drug that as soon as I took it, it was like that hole inside or that void or that thing that I'd been missing ever since I was a kid, it was full. And I was sort of content. You know what I mean? I'd never in what f- way? Like It was euphoric, like euphoric in the sense, not just because of the effects of the substance, but euphoric in the sense that I felt a part of something. You know what I mean? Everyone around me was doing the same thing. And I finally felt like this is it. I found my reason. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Okay. And as time went on, it became, obviously as time goes on, it becomes, you know what I mean? I, I would have been using more and more drugs and, and, and the quantities would have just kept increasing because you build up a tolerance and stuff like that. And that's when I, I, I started to realize that maybe I might have an issue. Like, you know what I mean? Because at the start when I was literally splitting a bag of cocaine with two or three people when we were starting to use together before I knew it, I needed two or three bags on my own, you know what I mean? Just to keep me going. So, and I could, I could sit easy then knowing that I had these drugs. Um, whereas in the past it was never like that. It was just sort of, yeah, we'll dabble here and there. And and how much at the time, I, I assume it like everything markets fluctuate. How much is a bag of cocaine? 80 euro. You could get what you could get a gram of cocaine, which is, very small <laughs> for 80 euro uh sometimes 100 depending on who you knew um and <laughs> and you'll always get so like dealers have a tendency to send out texts and when i say text it's almost like uh a notification text to their clients if you want to call it that way so it'll be like uh lovely stuff there you know what i mean half off this and they like try and entice you in with two for this and two for the price of that it's like <laughs> like a shop like a market you know what i mean yeah and uh, it's scary because it's it. Like, it's just, you're getting these texts left, right and centre. Like, you know what I mean? So even when you're not using, you're thinking of using. And even when you're, 
you're not thinking you're using you're using it's 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 just the way it is it's always there you know what i mean always there and especially nowadays with jesus with social media and stuff like that it's in your face 24 7 yeah okay you know I mean? so it goes from splitting one bag between three to three bags just for you mm. um and how does that manifest itself in terms of i guess money is the obvious question you got to pay for it yeah, well, money was never really an issue because I I just stole. I, I stole. I, I took anything that wasn't nailed down. I, I had to, to have it. Like, the drugs were the be-all and end-all. I needed the drugs to survive or to feel any way normal in society, like, you know what I mean? Because I'd always felt an outcast regardless. Even when I was a kid, I, I always felt there was something different or I was on the edge. I was never really involved Uh in any sort of sense of community or whatever, like, you know what I mean? So as yeah. soon as I sort of started taking drugs with these people, like, you know what I mean? I felt like I was there, like I was a part of the family nearly, you know, in a sort of way. And and I, I, do, when you say you were robbing stuff, do you mean from, like, from shops or from <clears throat> loved ones or... The people, that's the thing. The, the people that suffered the most at the hands of my addiction were my loved ones, like, were the family and, yeah. the, and the friends. I stole money. I stole money. I stole stuff that I could sell. I stole anything that wasn't nailed down. Like, I... I used that like um, and the reason that family suffered the most, most is because they were the easiest targets Yeah, because they loved me you know what I mean and they never wanted me to be in this situation so like there was there were certain times where it didn't matter who it was like you know what I mean whether it was uh, my mother my father my grandmother like you know what I mean my, my own brother um, did, they, did they know? they would have known yeah and they, they definitely know now um, because it's it's been talked about, like you know what I mean, and we've we've gone through our, our our trials and tribulations and our emotions and stuff when it came to therapy and stuff like that. We've talked about all this, um, but at the time, yeah, they knew, they definitely knew. Now, it was a different story confronting me on it because I could have stood outside and convinced you that the sky was green. You know what I mean. Okay. I was always lying, like, you know what I mean? And I, I became very good at it <laughs> because it was how I survived. I had to lie, like, you know what I mean? Because there's no truth when it, when it comes to addiction, like, none other than the fact that I was an addict. That was the only real truth that was there, like. And if you're just doing drugs and you're enjoying it and you're not getting into trouble and you're not hurting yourself, you might carry on doing drugs. Like, you hear about high-functioning drug yeah. addicts and stuff. But I guess... You had to have some hairy moments to go, I need help here. Yeah. What were the hairy moments? Well, there was a cut, like over the years, there's been plenty, like, you know what I mean? I do remember the days where it was all fun and laughs and festivals and, and out with the lads and out with the girls and all this sort of stuff. And we were all just one big group of people just using drugs, getting high and having a laugh. And I'll be honest with you, some of their memories are great because they were, they were fun and it was, it was, it was innocence, you know, in a sort of way. And, I'll always look back on them with a fondness to a certain extent because I was happy then, like, you know what I mean? But little did I know where I was going to end up, like. And some of the hairy moments that came, like, they're enough to, to put me off using again, like, you know what I mean? Hopefully for the rest like of what? my life. I suppose the first brush I had with the law, like, you know what I mean? Getting arrested and waking up in a guard cell, um, not knowing how I got there, not knowing what happened the night previous, waking up in just a pair of jeans, no shoes, socks, jumper, t-shirt, nothing. Just completely there and battered and bruised and covered in cuts and vomit and, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, couldn't even hold in, like, soiling yourself, like, you yeah. know what I mean? In the cell, like, because you can't hold that in because you're just in bits from the drugs and the drink. And, 
that's the reality of it. Like, you know what I mean? That's where I ended up. What age were you then? You know? Uh, I think I was 19 at that stage. And I always say, like, the funny thing about that is because even after that happened, I went out next week and I'd done the exact same thing. Just like the weed in the past. You yeah. know what I mean? Still went out, still done the same thing, and still didn't understand why <laughs> I was ending up in these situations time and time again. Given you're 19, actually, so... You know, in your parents' eyes, you're still a kid, but legally you're an adult. Mm. Did your parents know, like, for example, that time you'd end up in a guard cell? Oh, yeah, sure. I had to make my way home. I walked home in a pair of jeans and nothing else that morning. Like, and I think if I'm not wrong, I think I remember my mom saying she was driving down the road and my little brother was in the back of the car and she had to drive past me because she was in, I was in such a state she, she couldn't pick me up with him in the car and, uh, wow. and let her, let him see me. Um, she was dropping him to school. He was, he would have only been, I don't know, maybe eight. Eight at the time, like, um, and you're and that, walking black and blue and yeah, and covered in sick and blood and cuts and everything down the road, and I'm just trying to get home to figure out where I was and what happened, and like for your mom to turn around and not be able to come out, like I can only imagine how hard that was for her. You know what I mean? Seeing her, seeing her son, like seeing her eldest son walk down the road like that and having to ignore him. You know what I mean? Because she couldn't put my younger brother at risk, like of seeing something like that. You know what I mean? Um, you said your first, the first time you went to Rutland to seek help wasn't actually motivated by a genuine need to get better. Yeah. So the first time I went into treatment, it, it was for the wrong reasons. Like I, I had a drug, I had a drug debt that I owed out of a couple of hundred euro and, and I hadn't got it at the time. I wasn't working. I was on the social welfare and I'd racked up a debt like, um, and my mom and dad said, we'll pay the debt for you if you go into treatment. And I said, Grant, happy days. Like in my eyes, that was perfect because that way I could go in, lay low for 35 days, get my head a little bit straight again and go straight back using. I had no intention on staying clean um, at all because I I just believe I wasn't ready. Like I, I believe. And is... um. Having never been in debt to a drug dealer myself, <laughs> is a couple of hundred quid, was that dangerous or was that just... yeah? It is now, yeah, a hundred percent. Like, like I, I was saying before, like you know what I mean. Like, I know of people that have been stabbed over fifty euro. You know what I mean? Genuinely, genuinely stabbed over fifty euro, and weed, like not, not like cocaine or or heroin or or anything like you can that I suppose society would consider a a dangerous drug. Hardcore drug, drug yeah. yeah. And that's the issue, like you know what I mean. Weed still isn't looked as a hardcore drug. It's not looked like a like a menace when it comes to the drug world. You know what I mean. It's just weed, so people say. Um, but yeah, stabbed over fifty euro, like you know what I mean. And that's all, like just fifty fifty quid. Like I said earlier on, like the the thing that I the thing that I realised after I came into recovery was, I used to think I was friends with these people. I used to think that when I was going to pick up my drugs and I was going to to to, to see who I was seeing. I used to think that they liked me. Yeah. I used to think that they cared about me. I used to think that I was actually important to them. Um, and then it came to the realization that I am nothing but another 20 euro. No, that's all I am like. Yeah. And, and that's the harsh reality of it. That's all anyone is when it comes to that, because these people have people to pay and then people, they have people to pay. You know what I mean? It's just the way it works. Like, yeah. yeah. And in terms of, so the first time you went, it was just so your folks would pay the debt. And yeah. your 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 motivations weren't you you weren't in the place where you wanted to go of your own mm. volition, I guess. Uh, and so, what changed the second time around? What happened? I suppose after I came out of the Rutland the first time and I relapsed, um, like I, I was talking before, I said like the, 
the main reason that I am in recovery and, and the reason that I am where I'm at is because my mom and dad found the power within themselves to look after their own recovery. Because just because it was only me and addiction in the family, everyone was affected by it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a family, it's a family illness. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It really is. That's the way I look at it. And You're sick, but it affects everybody. Everybody. It's it's like a ripple effect. You know what I mean? All the actions and, 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 and stuff I do, they have consequences for everybody there. Um, and because we were living in chaos and, and trauma for so long through, through everything, they become normalized to that way of living. So it was only after my mom and dad realized that they have their own recovery and they can take their own power back and leave me to one side to look after myself. They were able to turn around and throw me out. They had to kick me out because they have two other sons in the family to look after. And if I hadn't have been for them coming to their own Al-Anon meetings and, and sticking with their aftercare after I'd relapsed, I would probably still have them wrapped around my finger and we'd all still be living in that chaos or I'd be dead. There's no in between for me, honestly. That's the way I feel. Like it's either we'd all still be living in it or, or I wouldn't be here. Like, and that's that's a huge step for them to have to take, even if it's self preservation to have mm. to kick their son out. Yeah. How did you end up on there was a bridge, is what I'm trying to get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, as time went on in, in those couple of months of, of a relapse, that fucking relapse from hell, I call it like you know what I mean, because. I done it's I honestly I done more damage to, to me and the people around me in those three months than I did in the whole eight years of drinking and using. Um How come? It just was chaotic. Absolutely chaotic. I think because everything that I'd sort of learned in here about addiction, you're trying to stuff it down. You're trying to forget about it. You know what I mean? So everything that the counsellors would have been talking to me for five weeks and everything that my mom and dad had learned about recovery and looking after themselves, I was trying to just pretend like everything was the way it was before I went in. And that doesn't work. You okay. cannot forget everything you have to learn. And like, I, I honestly believe once you've been to a, a meeting or you've been into treatment or you've recognised the issue, you're never going to use successfully again. Like you're never going to be able to use comfortably and without that sort of conscience. You yeah. know that, you know that way? Um. So was it? You had a, if not an an attempt, maybe suicidal thoughts. Uh, yeah, when I was after after stuff went on, uh, it got so bad that uh, so two two and a half months into that relapse, I ended up on the street. So I was sort of sofa surfing, you know what I mean, between yeah. people that I would have been using with and hanging around with and stuff like that. And um, as time went on, stuff stuff escalated you know what I mean and I ended up in a place that I never ever thought I'd be in and that was sitting on the edge of a bridge contemplating whether to jump or not like you know what I mean contemplating whether to take my own life um I was in such a state I don't really remember the night if I'm honest I was so far gone um I genuinely don't even remember taking that many drugs that day I think I was just in disarray like from everything that had gone on and the, everything that had led up to this point, it's all like one big blur. Um, but the two close friends that I, I still talk to now, they're the ones who sort of stuck with me tr when everything sort of hit the fan. And yeah. uh, they brought me down here to the Rutland Centre and threw me into a meeting. And ever since I went to that meeting that night, um, 
I I gradually started coming back again, like you know what I mean. And it was only because of that night where they they helped me out that I I got back into recovery. But it, the skin of my teeth, like really, really lucky, really lucky, like. Yeah. And what was the what's the hardest part of of recovery? Is it like do you have to go cold turkey? Is it like the what everyone imagines a padded room and you're sweating and going nuts? Well, yeah, like being completely honest, so like. The painkillers and stuff like they they were they were the hardest thing for me to come off. I I got really bad on on Norfan Plus and over the counter uh, medication like Salpidine and um, they became such a, a big part of my life. You know what I mean? And it was all down to <laughs> I went to the dentist. I went to the dentist uh, when I was twenty, I think it was twenty twenty one, and they recommended going in and getting Norfan Plus. No, obviously they didn't know I was an addict or I didn't really recognise it myself, but knowing then that they were so easily accessible. And were you getting a buzz off them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. I would have been taking two boxes of 24 tablets a day plus prescription tablets on top of that. So I would have been taking around 50, 60 tablets a day. Um, like in in my head, that would kill you in a week. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I, obviously your body can handle it, but it's it's got huge cost. Uh, big consequences. Like... Uh, uh, like you said, like with the cold turkey and stuff like that, when I was coming off the medication, I had to, uh, I had to sort of lock myself at home. Like I was allowed back into the family home because they knew I was getting back into treatment again. Yeah. So they allowed me back for a couple of days to get my head right. Um, and I basically just like, I couldn't even make it to the bathroom. You know what I mean? I was like soiling myself in bed and I was just vomiting. I looked like a ghost. I was down as far as I'd say eight and a half stone. I was, I couldn't. It, it genuinely like that scene now at Trainspotting. Genuinely, like that's yeah. that's the best way to describe it. Freezing cold, sweating. You know what I mean? Just not a nice experience at all. How long are you clean? Do you use the word clean? I yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I say yeah. clean. Yeah, I'll be t- I'm two and a half years clean now. Congratulations! Thanks very much. What's life look like now for you? Good. Like <laughs> I can actually say good. Like, and I can say it confidently and proudly. Like, you know what I mean? And solely down to the fact that I. I'm after putting the work in, like, you know what I mean? I deserve to be sitting here, like... I yeah. never said that about myself when it came to anything. I never deserved anything in the past, you know what I mean? Because that's... I didn't have any value on myself at all. Um, and over the last two and a half years, I really, really have put the work in, like, you know what I mean? After I finished treatment here, I went up and done another four months of treatment in a secondary treatment centre up in Navan. Yeah. And I decided to stay up there. Um, I changed everything. I changed my surroundings, people, places and things. They all had to change. Um, I changed absolutely everything. I got myself onto community employment scheme. Um, I'm now doing work experience as a support worker on that scheme that I started as a participant on. Um, I just finished my diploma out in UCD in community drug and alcohol work. And thanks very much. And I'm going on to do my degree in drug and social policy and sociology now in September. (laughs) That's 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 (laughs) proper harnessing your experience for the for the good. The yeah. greater good. Yeah. Well, look, yeah. in my eyes, like this, I was helped along the way. You know what I mean? I was. I definitely believe that I done this. You know what I mean? I'm the reason I'm sitting here because I could have decided to go back using at any point, but I didn't. Um, and I think that's the important thing about building up the support networks around you as you go along. Like I go to meetings and, and I do my aftercare. I go to aftercare religiously every Thursday night. You know what I mean? And yeah. um, it's about just routine and structure for the first first while of recovery anyway otherwise like you 
it's like a disaster waiting to happen again you know what I mean yeah, okay. like you're left alone with your own thoughts and your own head and you've no structure and no plan for the day so what else would you want to do Bargo using like and could you be out in a club now happy enough and even you know when you're peripherally where some person might be on drugs yeah. would you kind of look and go oh I missed that no solely down to the fact that I don't go <laughs> okay don't go don't partake in and don't, like that. Don't, don't get me wrong I've gone to concerts now I'll, I'll go to concerts I've gone to see the likes you know Dermot Kennedy and, and, and stuff like that I've gone yeah. to see concerts and everything and um, like they've been great uh, but like my girlfriend doesn't drink and I wouldn't really put myself in harm's way like okay. for the first year of recovery I stayed away from everything no functions no family events no parties anything drink is involved because you have to put yourself first like yeah. you know what I mean and like uh, we say like if if they're your family they're going to understand that they're only going to want what's best for you and to see you doing well. So if you can't go to a party for one night and they don't understand that, well, then maybe you need to reassess some stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Got to look after numero uno. Exactly, yeah. Um, what would you say to um, to people listening who either themselves are struggling with an addiction or who have a loved one who's struggling? Um, For anyone who is struggling... I suppose I always say it like you know what I mean it's it's okay not to be okay you know what I mean that's that's the one thing that I had to realize I had to I had to drop the drop the the facade and just put the hand up and say look I'm struggling I really am struggling like you know what I mean and I don't know what to do and I'm terrified and you know what I mean it's nearly heartbreaking because you build up this image of yourself and you build up this sort of bravado and stuff I did personally you know what I mean so to have that crumble in front of you and to be completely honest and vulnerable in some in front of someone like you know what I mean it's a really really hard thing to do but I'm telling you like the benefits outweigh the the, the cons like all day you know yeah. what I mean all day long they will always outweigh it like you know what I mean because I have a family back in my life I have a, I'm in a loving committed relationship you know what I mean I have absolutely no bother going to bed at night and sleeping. <laughs> like that's, that was the biggest, biggest thing. You know what I mean? Like peace of mind, like, you know what I mean? Being able to put your head on the pillow at night and turn around and say to yourself, you know what? I didn't do anything wrong today. Like, you know what I mean? I'm just doing my best. Like I'm just trying my best. And if you can help someone along the way by doing that, even better. You know what I mean? But the only way that that's going to happen is if you look after yourself and put yourself first. You know what I mean? And not be afraid to put yourself first. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's okay to be selfish when it's looking after yourself, you know, in that sort of way. Yeah, when it's self-preservation. Yeah. 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 Uh, like I said, there's a huge difference between it's a huge difference between privately admitting that you need help and seeking help mm. and then publicly sharing that story and like you say, having the vulnerability to do that. Um so they're two completely different things. So I one, I really respect the journey you've been on, but I also doubly applaud your bravery for sharing the story. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's yeah. very admirable. And well aware down in Navin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well aware, well aware. Thanks very much. David, hello. How are you? How's it going? Good. So I've kind of explained already about the reason for the Awareness Month and the Rutland and what they do. So give us a give us a picture of your life before day one in here. What's going on in your world? Um, so I basically grew up in Turner. I grew up in an addiction household. My mother was an alcoholic um, and I seen all the chaos and I was immediately attracted. 
Um, uh, attracted. Attracted to the chaos. I know. Yeah, it's really mad. Um, I just loved arguments in the house and I always got a kind of kick out of them. Uh, when I went to school, you know, I didn't really fit in and I wasn't one of the lads and couldn't talk to girls and I was really kind of I was in my own little shell and the lads invited me to a house party and I was like, oh, this is deadly. I had a fake ID and went to the house party and I got absolutely hammered. Um, what point, age are you talking here? I was about 14, 15 maybe. Okay. I think I drank like 24 cans. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was quite a lot for that age and I don't remember. For you know, any age. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kill some people. Um, all I remember is trying to leave the house and next thing I knew, I woke up the next morning at home in bed. No idea how I got home. Um, I know today that's a blackout. Um, I thought that was normal, that you have blackouts when you go out drinking. Um, I got a little bit scared um, and I kind of stayed away from drinking for a while. And um, I didn't really, I kind of had one or two, you know, and kind of, you know, took it nice and easy. And yeah. um, when I was in fifth and sixth year, you know, I picked back up where I kind of left off and it was just mayhem. Um, we'd done a kind of an after school study thing and my more interest going to the pub and getting pissed. Um, and, it, you know, the result of that, I didn't, I didn't do very well in my leaving cert. And I left school and, I just, you know, like anyone else, I went and got a job to feed my habit of drink. And that's kind of stage where I started got, like, getting arrested and, you know, fights and arguments with my parents. Um, arrested for public order stuff? Public order stuff, you know, because one of the lads got arrested and you know, I was like, oh, jeez, I haven't done that yet, you know. I just like, what was I think? My head, it's like my head will tell me it's a really good idea to go, to re- go get arrested. And then my head will tell me, what a dumbass, what you do that for, like? And so what, you're like 18? 18, 17, 18 years old. And in um, your head, because you know the way, I guess when I think back to anyone I would have identified in school as a drinker, like mm, a partier, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Some of the rugby lads and that kind of crack. Turner yeah. was a big rugby school. Did you differentiate yourself at that stage from yeah. people who went out and got hammered? Um, you know, I, I wasn't a rugby player, you know, and I didn't fit in with that certain group. I just went out with the lads and just got absolutely annihilated every night we went out. Um, and in the meantime of all that, you know, I met a girl and, you know, we started going out and then she got in the way of my drink and I was like, here, you need to leave. And, you know, I ended a relationship. Um, I was actually living in Donegal at the time. I was doing a fast course and apparently I rang her in a blackout and I broke up with her. And the next day I woke up and I was like did I break up with you? And she was like, yeah, yeah, you did. And I was like begging her to take me back. Like, and she was like, nope. And I was heartbroken. And did she just think you were a dick or did you, did she yeah, know you had... She had problems? an idea. Like she had said to me before, look, you need to kind of slow down and drink. And I don't want to go out tonight, drink with your mates. And I'd be dragging her out the pubs and stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, we'll just go for one or two. Like there's no, there was never one or two. It was, we'll have two. And then we'll see where the night goes. Yeah, she, look, she knew, she knew it was an absolute dick. Um, and I was and that's the way my drinking I went you know I let her go I came home from Donegal in March 2013 and I got a job and it just got worse uh, my mom, who at, now was then you know was in sobriety she was going to AA she was a couple of years sober it's like look I think you're an alcoholic let's go to AA and I was like oh great and she brought me you know and I went to 11 o'clock meeting in John of God's and I I was the youngest person there. Everyone was in their 30s, 40s, 50s. And I was like, I ain't sticking around here. My life is over. I stopped drinking now. And I went back out the same day. And, it, you know, it just progressed where it got worse and worse and worse. And then I couldn't stop myself. 
you know, I had a pretty good job. I was working for a nursing agency and, you know, money was flowing, drinks were flowing, you know. And How much f- do we spend the next week on drink? <laughs> Anywhere between three, four hundred euro. A week. A week. Um, I used to work for a nightclub promotion company and, you know, it was free champagne, you know, absolute piss, like, and doing beer bongs of that, like, and, you know, if, if people came back to my house, you know, and there was no cans left, there was a bit of drink on the tabletop, I'd sniff that, like, like, who in the right mind sniffs drink off the head just to get the last bit of alcohol? Um, you know, I was robbing money off my parents to feed me habit. It was, oh, it was, it was just carnage, you know, and I, I, did, I couldn't see a way out. And then, you know, I was getting arrested more. And the guards are seeing the pattern and, you know, thankfully there was a guard in Pier Street Guard Station who kind of took me under his wing and looked out for me when I was out there. And, you know, we're still in contact today and he, he often texts, you know, how long are you sober now? And, you know, he's like, he's so proud of me, you know, and it's it's crazy how this works. And, um, you know, and from the age of 19 till I was about 22, just after my 22nd birthday, you know, he was just in and out of hospitals. Every weekend I was in James Hotel Hospital. I woke up in James, like I said, on a spinal board and a neck brace, covered in my own blood and no recollection of what happened. I'm guessing I fell, I think. I don't know. I still don't know. So you woke up in James one time? Yeah, yeah. Neck brace? Yeah. Spinal board? Yeah. That would be the end for a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, like for a lot of people, like, yeah, maybe I should stop drinking. My first thought was, when can I go drinking again? You know. So uh, that wasn't the no, no, that you walked into the Rutland? No, I um, I went back drinking and, and, you know, same thing again. I was getting arrested. My parents used to say to me, you know, what guard station is going to ring us tonight? And I'd be like, you know, they're not going to ring. I promise you'll only have one or two. And then, you know, it's... And given your mom's experience, mm. and this might sound like an ignorant question, could they have done anything more? Could they have grabbed you by the head, by your hair and pulled you through the door or... Or did, would it not have mattered what they had done until you had the realisation yourself? No, I don't think it really would have mattered what they've done. Um, they suggested treatment centres, counsellors, all this stuff. And I was just, you know, it was put to me like, you know, it is your choice at the end of the day. And it's funny, James Hospital had referred me off to a counsellor and I was going to this counsellor, but I was still drinking. Yeah. I had no interest in going to this counsellor. Um and I was going there because I was, you know, at the time I would have been quite suicidal through drinking and stuff like that. And, you know, my thoughts weren't very, you know, clear. And and so when you say you were suicidal, is that you were having suicidal thoughts or you made actual attempts? Um, I, made, I made a couple of attempts when I was drinking, you know, I tried jumping off a of Connell Bridge. Um, I just wasn't in the right frame of mind. I just didn't want to be alive anymore. And so and, and what happened in that instance? You know, the guards, I'd ring the guards or someone would see me and ring the guards. You know, there was one instance where the guards came and grabbed me, you know, and strapped my legs and cuffed me in the back of a van and, you know, shipped off to James Hospital again and I'd get to James and I'd leave. Um, and they couldn't stop you? They couldn't stop me. There's been other instances where I've been to tell hospital and security have sat with me, you know, or if I tried to leave, I'd be brought back and, you know, would be, you know, um... They've said, you know, we're going to sedate you if you don't stay. And, you know, that's... No normal drinker goes through that kind of experience. No. Um, and, it, you know, it's it's scary thinking back to all that kind of stuff, what was going on. Um, I was, you know, I was quite young. Um, but, like, there was an instance where, you know, I went to a local pub and I had two or three drinks and I had, went into a blackout and woke up in the Palace nightclub thinking how did I get here I always I just said I was going to have one or two and then I was going to go home 
you know, is, you know, great, these great ideas of having one or two and going home, like, never happened. And if it wasn't waking up on spinal board with the neck brace or being pulled off a Connell Bridge mm. by the guards, what was the tipping point that made you go to the Rutland? Um, I suppose my last night of drinking, um, I couldn't get drunk. I drank, you know, quite excessive amount and... You know, the doctor's like, you're depressed, you've this, you've died, you know, labelling me with stuff. And, you know, I knew deep down inside that I had a serious drinking problem. Um, and I admitted then and there that I was an alcoholic to myself. And I went home and I told my parents and they're like, look, you need to go into a treatment centre. I don't care where it is, but you need help. Um, and I rang the Rutland and they took me in two weeks later, you know, and them two weeks I was living all over the place. I wasn't drinking as much as I wanted to drink and, you know, I couldn't. Um, and I, I, you know, drinking had just stopped working. It wasn't fun to drink anymore. It was just consequences every time I took up a drink. And when you went into Rutland, uh, did you have a job at that stage? I had, yeah, I had, I had a job. Well, sort of. Um, but they, you know, they kind of they let me go. Um, I think they kind of knew what was going on. I kind of would, you know, at the time I wasn't. Knew what was going on in terms of your drinking, yeah. Or that you would kind of gone into yeah, it. it was kind of cancelling shifts, and you okay. know, I wasn't turning up, and I just, I just didn't want to be there, you know. And um, when I came out of the Rutland, you know, they're like, "Look, you need to go see a doctor, and then we'll allow you to come back to work." And I think it was two or three months later, I actually went back to work, and you know, I'm very grateful they took me back. Um, yeah. It was, you know, and then I decided to leave and I got another job somewhere else and, you know, and I had a stable job and, you know, I was going to loads of meetings, you know, that's what you suggest when you're in the road and, you know, you need to go to your meetings and you need to get a sponsor. Um, and a sponsor is someone that's, you know, gone through this work, which is 12 Steps for Alcoholics Anonymous and, you know, it's, it's a life-changing experience, really. And how did you find the process of rehabilitation? Yeah, it was, it was, you know, very scary. It literally had to change my whole life. My friends, my job, who I hung around with, all had to change. And that wasn't such a big, you know, I didn't find that major pain, you know. Um, I suppose the friends thing was kind of the biggest one for me, you know. I kind of, I had to let go of them friends um, for obvious reasons because they all drank and they'd done other stuff. But, you know, it was for, it was for the better. Um, that I, and did you, did you kind of quietly just slide away from them yeah. or did you, did you tell them look this friendship doesn't serve no my uh, health like when i came out of here i kind of met them once or twice at house parties and then i kind of just kind of slid away quietly and you know i'd say hi to them i've seen them on the street today yeah but like we're not we're, i wouldn't say we're friends anymore yeah okay. um mentioned earlier the 12 steps are yeah. on, the, on the wall i'd never actually seen them written down and one of the ones that jumped out at me is you basically said you have to be willing to acknowledge the wrong you've done yeah. to others and make amends with those people. Did yeah. You, did did um, you go through that process? Yeah, the first year I, I kind of, my only spent I half arsed the program. Um, I didn't really, I went through them, but I didn't really go through it. I kind of just took, you know, I took kind of backseat kind of role. It was in a bit of a cloud and... okay. Life was, you know, life was good. And, you know, after about a year, I kind of came off that cloud and was like, maybe I need to do this again. You know, I went through it again with another guy and I wrote, I wrote out the list and, you know, my parents were at the top of the list. And 
I met, you know, I went and I made amends to my parents and, you know, I told them how sorry I was. And I genuinely was sorry for, you know, for what I had done and the pain and harm I'd caused them. But it was mostly, you know, the, the peace of mind that I took from when I was out there. And now they have that, you know, they're not waking up during the night where, wondering where I am or yeah. what guard station am I in or what hospital am I in. Like I said, you know, I'd made amends to a guy I went to school with who I caused bodily harm to as part of a group of people. And, you know, I was to do what he was on a... He was on a den thing and, you know, we took that, we just took the piss out of him. He broke his arm and, you know, I went back and I apologised to him. And You broke his arm? I didn't physically. He hit his arm off a chair and he broke his arm out of anger and, you know. Oh, because you guys were giving him a hard time? Yeah, giving him a really hard time and, you know, he was like, oh, I still think about that every day. And I was just like, holy shit. No idea. Absolutely no idea that what it had caused him. As much as physically giving up alcohol and not putting it in your body mm. did that process feel cathartic yeah i was very you know i was very tired all the time i didn't want to do a lot of things um you know they, they always said to me i'll have a bit bar of chocolate with you or something sweet you know for your energy um i picked up started drinking coffee and eating, you know going to all these nice coffee shops in town i was just like <laughs> people were like let's go for a coffee and i was like what is this like you know and <laughs> that was just part of it It was just fellowship you know meeting other members you know go for a coffee have a chat you know and it was great like you know but you know i was meeting other people my own age at that time you know that were you know sober and, you know had a great life and i was just like like coffee shops what is wrong with you like, <laughs> This process, what did it do for better or for worse for your relationship with your mom? Given she, yeah, so like, I guess me and my mom would have had a pretty, you know, rocky relationship. I would have blamed her a lot in my drinking for my drinking. I felt she was at fault that I had that upbringing and you know I was involved in that chaos. And the true fact it was nothing to do with her at all. Um, loads of people, parents drink, and you know, they have no effect. We actually have a really good relationship today. She's sober, I think. She's coming up like nine years sober. Wow. We're no longer arguing with each other. You know, we both love one, each one another, genuinely love each other. And it's the same with my dad. You know, me and my dad always had a good relationship, but it's even better now. You know, it's it's a really good, it's a really nice, quiet family. You know, they they were away on holidays for I think seven, eight weeks in Spain. They left me at home, my own, and. They knew the house wasn't going to get absolutely trashed or, yeah. you know, the home, nice clean house, you know, which was nothing broken or, you know, that's great. Like, you know, they they trust me. Yeah. Was, was one of the major things, you know, I got back. And in terms of, you know, what I thought what you were saying earlier was really interesting about, like when you went to AA the first time and you were the youngest mm. person there by a country mile. I suppose some people might struggle with acknowledging problem drinking versus I'm just young and I'm going for it mm. loads because mm. well, I'm a legend. Yeah, yeah. Um, what would you say the difference is between session drinking and problem drinking? It's so, all bad. Everyone yeah, no one should drink like, to the point where they're getting sick. But yeah, you know. yeah. yeah, so like for me, you know, I knew the difference was when I went to the pub, the lads and they'll have one or two drinks and I'd have already drank four pints. Okay. You know, I couldn't have, I could never go and have one or two drinks. It was hell for leather, like, every yeah, time yeah. I went. Um, every time? Every time, you know. Now, there was there was one occasion where I went, you know, and I, I had a few, you know, switching drinks, and I was drinking 7-Up after a beer or a glass of water, you know, and that worked once, and then I tried it again, and, and it didn't work, you know. And in, in the book, it says, if you don't, if you think you don't have a problem, step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. 
And if you can do it more than once, yeah, that's very well. We wish on your wish you all. We'll wish you well on your way, you know. But if you can't, you may be an alcoholic. But you're the only like you. You'll know yourself deep down inside if you have a serious problem with drinking. You know, drink. A lot of people receive alcoholics. People on the street drinking a pen paper bag. You know, it's we live in the twenty first century. It's not like that. Yeah. Um, and you know it, that is the perception of what people think an alcoholic looks like. You know, there's alcoholics everywhere and anywhere. You know, with famous people. You know. Not mention names, but middle class people. Yeah, regular, regular Joe Souls. Looks like they got their shit together. People. Yeah, yeah. They've what you, and I, I leading off from that question, what do you say to particularly any younger people who might be listening or or loved ones of younger people? You know, with a, if you think you know, if you think you know somebody that has a drink problem, go to an open meeting or public information meeting. You know, there'll be people there from Al-Anon, You know, there for the people that you know were affected by someone's drinking, you know, there's a program there for you as well, you know, and go and listen, go to a couple of meetings, you know, and if you can identify with people, go just go up and ask them, you know, talk to them after the meeting and like, you know, tell them a little bit about yourself and, you know, you'll soon, you know, realise if you have a drinking problem, you know, there's plenty of people that come in, you know, they may not have a drinking problem, but I, you know, for me, you know, I, I was an alcoholic from a young age and I wish I would have stuck around when I was 19, but I didn't. You know, your life, you know, like I said, life gets better when you get sober. Life is, life is, for me today, it's great. You know, we really go morning, you know, we spent a bit of time with our parents and then I came up to the Rutland for for, um, for this and, uh, you know, a really nice weekend with my girlfriend and, you know, back to work tomorrow and, you know, life goes on, you know, life is just so much better without drinking. So much more clear-headed space, you know, not waking up in the morning, who did I text, who did I hurt, who did I punch? You know, knowing what happened last night, you know, and one of the big things for me was, you know, not waking up with a wet bed. You know, I used to wet the bed when I was drinking. I used to be so ashamed of that, you know, telling people, but, you know, it is a common thing with drinkers that you will wet the bed. Yeah. Everyone everyone has their own own journey, you know, you've just got to experience it. Um, for me, I've got the pleasure, you know, traveling all around the world to different conventions and meeting different, pe- different people, you know. I spent 10 days out out in Austin, Texas last year at a convention, you know. And said, with, with, with this story, your journey? Yeah, yeah. I went to a convention, a convention out there, and there was like a thousand people. And I was the only Irish guy there, you know. It was just, uh, it was unbelievable. It really was. And I met some really nice people and some genuine people that I can actually call my friends, you know. And we still talk and they're actual friends. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not going into bars and nightclubs and getting pissed and talking shit to people. Like, that doesn't amuse me anymore, you know. So the, the, the alcohol itself costs you a whole lot, but the journey back has, has gifted you some things. Yeah, definitely, yeah. You know, I've learned, you know, I've learned a lot from this. The area I live in, you know, there's a couple of people in recovery, you know, and it's, it's where would you get it, like? Yeah. Um. My next door neighbor, you know, he's celebrating. I think forty years sobriety this year. And all right. Mom's nine years, and then on January it'll be five years, and it's crazy. You know, I, I remember going to one of my first meetings in my house, and I bet I met a guy. Um, a guy's dad that I would have drank with his son. Yeah. And he was around years, and I had no idea that he was sober, and I was just like, holy shit! Like. And finally, uh, what's the future hold? What's does it look bright? Yeah, a bit of travelling. I would have travelled a lot with my parents when I was younger, but now, obviously, in a relationship, uh, we both want to go travelling. You know, we booked Spain yesterday for a week. Um, plan to go to Bali next April for three weeks. Um, yeah, look, I want to progress my career a little bit more. You know, I'm a pharmacy technician. Um, 
I'd like to go and start maybe doing some management stuff, you know, kind of progressing okay. up on the scale. Um, look at the moment, just taking a day at a time, you know, whatever happens, happens, you know. That's just the way it is. Yeah, yeah. Nothing yeah, wrong yeah. with that. Saying to Connor as well, it's one thing, it's one thing privately going to seek treatment yeah, yeah. Uh, for a problem that has a, a real life cost. Mm. And it's another thing, kind of sharing your story and being that kind of open and vulnerable about your own flaws and follies mm. and and brushes with darkness and whatnot for the purpose of helping other people mm. so i think to for both of you it's your credit and i really appreciate your honesty no problem and thank you best of luck with the, the journey thank you and we'll shake hands again so there you have it you've been listening to the stories of connor and dave both of whom received treatment at the rutland center this deep diving has been brought to you by the center as part of their recovery month And like I said at the start of the podcast, if you or anyone in your life is struggling with addiction, you can seek advice and information on rutlandcentre.ie. If you enjoyed the podcast, if you think it would hit home with someone you know or love, please put it on your socials. Please spread the good word. And we're back next week. Normal services resumed. I promised them last week, but we took a special hiatus for this one. Mr. Sam Fender. Talk to you then.